0: Hey there, I'm Sarah K. Hoffman, a holistic health coach and chief gutsy of gutsygirl.com. I went from bloated, gassy, and infertile to living my best life with a strong microbiome and a very full house. On this show, no topic is too stinky to discuss and everything can be broken down into practical, digestible takeaways. So grab a cup of bone broth, veggie broth, or a soothing golden latte if you prefer, and come along as I show you how the number two might just be your new number one. Hello, and welcome to my podcast, the A Gutsy Girl podcast. My name is Sarah K. Hoffman, aka A Gutsy Girl, and your host for this show. In case this is your first time hanging out on the show with me, welcome. I am the founder and chief gutsy of both agutsygirl.com and guthealingsupplements.com. For today's episode, episode 88, I brought on Dr. Zuri Morell. Today's episode is an incredible mic drop episode. I cannot even tell you how excited I am for you to be able to listen in, to hear from Dr. Zuri. I know you're going to go follow him immediately. He is hilarious, but he's also extremely serious and practical nonetheless. I found myself having to spend some time after I recorded the show with him today, just reflecting on all of the things. There were so many points in the conversation and when he was speaking that I was feverishly taking my own notes and going through my own thoughts. And to be honest with you, it was a lot of emotional thoughts maybe more than anything, because today is the colon cancer episode and he is a top expert in this. I think what got me the most, he starts talking about a man that was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer, how he ultimately became friends with him. And then he watched as he passed away from it. And I was triggered so much because of my Own journey, my experience of doing the exact same thing with my father. It brought up so many different thoughts and emotions. And I think what I'm most grateful for that he came on the show is that there's someone with a million times infinity the knowledge and information and expertise than me that is going to share with you the sentiments that I am constantly trying to impart on this community. So, I'm going to let his bio speak to everything else because he is so incredible, and I am absolutely honored to have him on. Zuri A. Murrell, MD, is a leading Los Angeles colorectal surgeon and specialist. Dr. Murrell is a physician member on the board of directors of Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. Currently, Dr. Morrell serves as the medical director of outreach and quality integration for Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. He is also a chairman of the Cedars-Sinai Physician Medical Staff DEI Task Force. His previous positions included director of the colorectal cancer program, clinical chief of colorectal surgery, chairman of the committee on the Samuel Oshan Comprehensive Cancer Institute, and an attending surgeon at Cedars Sinai Medical Center. Dr. Morell has gained certification with the American Board of Colon and Rectal Surgery and the American Board of Surgery since 2007. With his own practices located in Beverly Hills and Los Alamitos, California, lacolonrectalsurgeon.com. And he has over 40 publications, including scientific book articles and book chapters. He was the director of the colorectal cancer program at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center from 2010 through 2018. Dr. Murrell specializes in colon cancer, rectal cancer, hemorrhoids, Crohn's disease, colitis, IBD treatment, and colonoscopies also the developer of anal rejuvenation. He is also an inventor scientist who holds a patent for a novel anal rectal cream. He enjoys educating the community on cancer prevention through nutrition and living a healthy lifestyle by giving lively, interactive, motivating educational seminars. He has educated audiences on television like The Doctors, Hallmark Channels, Home and Family, Telemundo, and various public service campaigns. Please welcome Dr. Zuri to the show. Welcome to the A Girl podcast, Dr. Zuri.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for the invitation.
0: We were just chatting for a couple minutes before we hit start on the old podcast, and I was telling him how honored I feel that he is on the show in between all the other millions of super important things that you do every single day You probably don't know much about my story. I don't expect you to, but having you on my podcast, like I could probably cry thinking about it, but after I lost my dad to colon cancer in 2019, it's really what made me keep going on this platform. And so being able to have someone like yourself, I mean, gosh, I wish I could have had this conversation with you when he was first diagnosed, but whatever, that's neither here nor there. I'm so grateful. And I know that there are so many people that are in my same shoes today that are dealing with a loved one that has any type of gut health issue, but you know, as far as colon cancer, or they will deal with it at some point. And so this conversation is so important, but before we get started, please just share all about yourself, your main areas of focus. And also I want to know why you in particular are so passionate about colon health.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. And part of the reason I'm so passionate about it is kind of what happened to your father and what happens to so many people. Colorectal cancer is almost totally preventable if we, number one, you know, know our family history, things we can do for ourselves in terms of nutrition, et cetera, but also colonoscopies. Colonoscopy is literally the only test a man or a woman can have that actually prevent cancer. And so I went into this because i um, you know, I lost my mom to breast cancer a month before I graduated med school. That was always very personal for me. And I just remember everything she went through from MRIs to double mastectomy, to chemotherapy, more chemotherapy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of these tests were being done to find something, but there was really nothing she could do. And even now, it's really hard to do to prevent it. And so I you know, was looking for something that some field I can go into that would actually help to prevent cancer. And so people always say, well, how did you go into colorectal? You know, typically if I'm at a party (laughs) or I'm talking to people, I'll say what I do. And then people are like, oh, that's gross. Why do you want to go into that? And the people who say that the loudest are the people who pull me aside at a later date and say, hey, I have this problem. I have that problem, you know? And what I think is unique about what I do is that obviously I like to talk and I like the fact that you have to make somebody feel comfortable enough you know, in the first two minutes of talking to them that they're willing to discuss something that is so personal and so private. And, you know, I always say that people shouldn't die from fear and you shouldn't die from embarrassment. And that's really the number one reason, I think, why a lot of people are still succumbing to to this disease. It's because of the taboo subject of, of anal rectal problems. And so in terms of my general specialty, I focus on hemorrhoids, which, you know, we'll talk about a little later. I do surgery for uh, inflammatory bowel disease and like I said, uh, colorectal cancer and and a lot of the problems that are in between. But I'm probably one of the few surgeons that, you know, my goal is to try to fix people initially without surgery. And that's something that's really passionate. I want to put myself kind of out of the cancer business, as I like to say. And that's kind of what made me want to do this. I, I always wanted to be a superhero as a kid. But, you know, when you jump off the roof, realize you can't fly, maybe you break your arm. (laughs) then you, you want to find another way to save people. This is something that I'm really passionate about.
0: I love when you said that people shouldn't die of fear or embarrassment. And I think it's also partly why I continue to do this is because first, even till today, there's such a stigma around the conversation And I always I make a ton of jokes and puns like this, such a stinky topic that needs to be discussed and, you know, all these different things. But I do believe that what you're saying is exactly correct. And that is what leads people from an otherwise normal healthy state to a place where they never thought they would be because they were too afraid of finding out or too embarrassed to talk about it.
1: Exactly. You're totally right. And I do like some of the, you know, the jokes you make. I do some of those things also, you know, in terms of trying to make people feel comfortable with this. But um, that's the biggest issue is that when you start having some of these symptoms and some of these problems, especially what we're seeing now in terms of younger demographic, typically, for instance, you know, rectal bleeding. Rectal bleeding is something we probably all of us will have, okay, when you have a hard bowel movement, et cetera. So that's something that, you know, people will kind of watch. And and even if it lasts a long time, instead of kind of talking to to physicians about it, that, you know, they're kind of embarrassed. That is something that from what I do, you should never be embarrassed about. But that's still what it is. I I really think it's the word rectum. You know, I always say that um, when I'm at the dinner table and, and, you know, my dad or my family say, you know, what do you do or how was work? And And I say colorectal. And my dad was like, why are you saying rectum at the table? Like, that's gross, right? (laughs) Whenever I give talks, I actually make, uh, you know, so I do a lot of outreach. And before COVID, I used to go to a lot of different churches. And so I would, you know, have everybody stand up and I'd make everybody say the word colon, say the word rectum, say the word anus. You shouldn't die from fear. You shouldn't die from embarrassment, right? And so when I say colon, the crowd is like colon. When I say rectum, about half of them fall off. And then when I say anus, they're like anus, you know, <laughs> because of these, you know, the taboo nature of it. And so we kind of start from there. And it's interesting because even my wife, who's a, who's an ophthalmologist, you know, sometimes I remember there was a, a woman who I saw in my waiting room who I happened to go to college with. So I'm like, oh, hi, I'll see you soon. And so she, you know, I realized it's lunch. I haven't seen her. And I asked my front office, oh, what happened to to my friend? And she was like, oh, you know, she saw your partner. And I was mad. I was like, I've known this woman forever. You know, I'm the one that told her to come in X, Y, and Z. And my wife had to remind me. She's like, look, to you, a butthole is like an arm. But to other people, it's still very private, you know? And so I even forget. I'm trying to become more empathetic, but it's hard for me to do that when I see so many people die that don't have to die. And something that we're really seeing now, and this is why I love what you're doing because of your younger demographic, we're seeing a 12-fold increase. And people under the age of 45 getting colorectal cancer, okay? If you are born in the 1990s versus the 1950s, you have a higher chance of getting colorectal cancer. I want that to sink in. That means that if you're born in 1950, the chance of you getting colorectal cancer is actually lower than if you were born in 1990. And that is something that people don't think about. And unfortunately, a lot of physicians don't think about it. And so when you're dealing with a younger person, it's kind of a twofold issue is that, number one, a lot of people don't know the signs and symptoms, which we're going to talk about today, which I'm very excited to talk about. But unfortunately, even when you see a physician, a lot of times it has not been on a physician's mind that this is what it could possibly be. And that's why you have to empower you know yourself. I always say that it's important for patients to be their own healthcare advocates. And what does that mean? That doesn't mean arguing necessarily with your physician, but it's a team effort. I always say, I can't love you more than you love yourself. And so I always say that no matter what it is, if it's colon health, if it's diabetes, if it's high blood pressure, whenever you have a doctor's appointment, you need to come prepared, meaning that, you know, know what questions you want to ask and work with your physician. And if your physician doesn't want to necessarily work with you, then you need to find another physician because it's a team approach. And this will help you as you navigate life, and as you get some of these different kind of issues, you know, to determine and have somebody in your corner to determine if it is more serious, if there are other issues, things of that nature. You know, that's something that's very, very, very important. And if we want to stay on the colon cancer topic, people always say, what are the symptoms, for instance, of colorectal cancer? And the issue with that is that the symptoms are something we will all have at some point in our life. And most of the time, it's not colon cancer. So when you look at Rectal bleeding, for instance. Okay. So the number one cause of rectal bleeding is actually hemorrhoids. Now, people say, what what are hemorrhoids? So hemorrhoids actually have a function, and we all have internal hemorrhoids. So I love it when I go to a med school and I'm lecturing and I tell the med school class, raise your hand if you have hemorrhoids. And I raise my hand and nobody else raises their hand and I chastise them for not knowing this information. We all have internal hemorrhoids. So internal hemorrhoids are about 5% of the reason we don't defecate on ourselves. They actually have a function, they help with continence. But when you know you have them, that's when it's a problem. And so one of the things they can do is bleed, okay? And a lot of times it's bright red blood, but a rectal cancer can also do the same thing. A colon cancer can also do the same thing. And so you can't just assume it's hemorrhoids. So people will say, well, hey doc, since most of the time it's not gonna be a cancer, you know, what are different ways I can know or differentiate that? So I say that if you've had a hard bowel movement, uh, you notice bleeding or you feel something back there, you can try over-the-counter remedies. You can go, you know, try the preparation H's. You can try some of the other over-the-counter remedies. But this goes for almost all medical issues is that if you try something for a month and it doesn't change, no matter what it is, that's when you need to be evaluated by a physician. So if most of the time it's hemorrhoids, let's say it stops, what else could it be? If the bleeding continues or if it's mixed in stool, and if it continues longer than a month, that is a hundred percent time that you need to be evaluated. So, and I don't care what age you are. If blood is mixed in stool, you think that it could be higher up, meaning that there's a cause of bleeding that is higher than the rectum. You know, that could be colonic typically. Okay. And this is when once again, it's red blood mix in stool. Now, how do you evaluate that? If you see that, that is a person who, in my opinion, and a lot of colorectal surgeons' opinions and a lot of GI doctors' opinions, that needs to be evaluated with a colonoscopy, with a scope, okay? A colonoscopy is done to actually evaluate the entire colon. Now, most of the time, you're not going to have cancer even when that happens. There's other things it can be, but you have to rule out cancer. What are other causes that you can see blood mixed in stool with? You can see it with something called inflammatory bowel disease, which we can get into. You can see it with a polyp, with polyps that are causing some of the bleeding. And the cool thing is with some of these pathologic conditions, you can actually not only diagnose them with the colonoscopy, you can treat them with it too. And so that's kind of goes with that evaluation. One of the other symptoms of signs and symptoms of possible colon cancer is something else we've all experienced, changes in bowel habits. Now, all of us have had episodes where we've been constipated, okay, where maybe we've had some loose stools. But when do you worry about that? So if you go and have a bowel movement like clockwork, every day, 10 o'clock, every day, 10 o'clock, and you notice that over the course of time, it's uh, every three days, for instance, and you try the usual over-the-counter remedies, and this doesn't change, then you need to be evaluated. If you notice that you go every two days, and this has been you for your life, and all of a sudden you're having a lot of liquid stools, and that's every day, and this lasts for longer than a month, then you need to be evaluated. This is something that most of us have had, and most of the time it blows over. Sometimes we get constipated because of our lack of fiber in our diet. Sometimes you know, we have too much fun and either drink too much, or we eat something that we shouldn't be eating, and we have diarrhea but it's the sustained changes in our body that then needs to be evaluated. Now, the third most common symptom of colorectal cancer is also something that we've all had, which is abdominal pain, right? We've all had a little abdominal pain, like, you know, when, and most of the time, it could be gas or something like that. Sustained or significant abdominal pain that is not getting better over the course of two to three days also needs to be evaluated. Now, all those I mentioned, usually those aren't colon cancer. Okay. However, it can be. And it's something that needs to be evaluated for two reasons. Now, all colon cancer starts as these growths called polyps. And most polyps have no signs or symptoms. So, I'm sorry, no sign actually, and you don't feel pain. But if you have some bleeding, it could be a polyp. Or when you get a colonoscopy for other reasons that we just discussed, you may find something like a cancer but if you find colon cancer early it is curable okay it is curable and so that is the power of being aware of your body but also knowing the appropriate exam and the appropriate testing because if you're not able to prevent it in this particular case if you find something early then you can actually treat it and cure the disease and something that's very powerful and you talked about your father what I always tell people, and a lot of men especially are hesitant about getting colonoscopies. And uh, this is of any age. So they'll come in and they, you know, I say you need a colonoscopy. And a lot of men will say, well, you know, I don't want that. I don't want anybody sticking things in my butt. And I'm just going to be really frank with you. That's what people say. I don't want anybody sticking anything in my butt. Okay. And so I, and then I say, well, do you, you know, do you love your wife? And a lot of guys will say, yeah, I love my wife. But, you know, like if I something happens to me, she'll be fine. And then what I say is like, do you love your kids? And they always say, well, what do my kids have to do with it? Well, if you get a colonoscopy and polyps are found, if you have over, you know, 10 polyps over your colonoscopy lifetime, then your child will get a colonoscopy and, you know, sooner, meaning that instead of the age of 45, they can get it at 35, they can get it at 40. And so your dad may have, and I'll tell you why it's important to me, your dad going through what he did probably will save your life because you'll be getting screened earlier. My father, who I had to convince to get a colonoscopy, I even had to convince his health system to do a colonoscopy because they were just trying to do a stool test, which really frustrates me that a lot of places are doing this as a first, it's kind of like a first line, you know, my father uh, went in and basically they told him it was a colonoscopy, but he actually had something called a flexible sigmoidoscope. And I don't know if you know what that is, Sarah, you probably do, but that's when, you know, while a patient's awake, you look at the lower third of the colon. Now, the benefit is you don't need anesthesia, but it is not helpful as much anymore because most colon cancers now, especially in African-Americans, but now in a lot of different people are on the right side. And so my father, I had to fight for him to get the colonoscopy. And guess what? He literally had six polyps above where the area of the sigmoidoscopy went. And over his lifetime of colonoscopy, and he still gets them, he's had over 12 polyps. Now, because I knew his history, and I used to joke with him all the time, I'm like, you know, I saved your life, dad. You know, every time he'd tell me to do something, I'm like, hey, 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 man, I saved your life. So because of this, I get my first colonoscopy at 42. I had a huge two centimeter polyp on the right side of my colon, okay? That was high grade dysplasia which meant I would have had a colon cancer by the age of 45. And so now he's like, hey, I saved your life. And that's the key. And so I'm sure you're getting your, you know, your exams and everything, especially because of what your father went through. Yeah, I know everybody's familiar with Chadwick Boseman, who, you know, passed early from colon cancer. Now, this was the first time, you know, I always say that he played a lot of heroes in the movies, but he became a real hero in death. And people say, what do you mean by that? After he passed, this was the first time I had so many males come in of their own volition. So many young males of all ethnicities come in on their own volition and want a colonoscopy because of that. And I always say that that was his hero contribution. Because of him, I found so many polyps in young people that would have never had a colonoscopy and probably would have been a cancer. I just don't want people to have to die anymore for other people to realize that this is something that's needed. And the hard part is when people know Sarah that they need it but health systems won't do it and the only way a lot of people can do it is if they pay for it themselves. That's the hard part. You know, that is something that I am really trying to fight in terms of changing the the guidelines and doing different things like that because there are a lot of people now who know what they need but it's hard to get what they need, you know, and that's a I'm sure a conversation for a different day.
0: Okay, so many things to unpack and thoughts that go through my head and notes that I'm scribbling down, even personal ones. So, yes, I have had three colonoscopies and I did have one right after my father passed too. But one thing that a lot of people say to me is, can I do anything but a colonoscopy that's less invasive? And by the things that you're saying, the answer is no. But what is the actual correct answer there? Is there something else?
1: Okay, so. You have to remember that there's tests that diagnose and prevent cancer, and then there's tests that find cancer, okay? I think number one is people have to realize that what guidelines are for. So guidelines in this country are meant to have a realistic goal of trying to screen everybody in the country. So I'm here in Los Angeles, for instance. So you could throw a rock and hit somebody like me, not just like me, but somebody like me. Do a colonoscopy, but if you're in Georgia and other places, you can. And so, what is happening? There's stool tests. So there's a FIT test, F I T, and there's a Cologuard test, which is looking at stool DNA. Now, these tests are easy to do. You basically have a bowel movement, you collect some of your stool, you mail it in, and they mail it back to you and tell you if it's positive or not. Now, if it's positive, then you automatically go to have a colonoscopy. Now, my only issue with that is that that test is pretty good at finding cancer. Just because that's positive doesn't mean you have cancer, but that test, these tests are pretty good at finding cancer. The guard is much better than the FIT test, but the FIT test is cheaper. And unfortunately, you know, in our country, it has to do with pricing a lot too. I'm not a big fan of insurance companies, obviously. So anyway, (laughs) it has to do with with price, right? So my goal is to prevent it. And so those tests are not good at finding polyps, okay? And that's the big issue that I have with them. They are good at finding cancer, not good at finding polyps, so that is a less invasive way in, of of finding out whether or not you have cancer. Now, where do FIT tests and Cologuard tests um, fall in my practice? If you have no family history, number one, polyps or colon cancer, and two to three colonoscopies have been done on you and never found a polyp, then yeah, you can go ahead and do Cologuards and things of that nature. You know, if you're too sick to undergo a colonoscopy, meaning that if you have other issues that a colonoscopy will be a little more dangerous, then you can do these stool tests. And then we can have that discussion about further doing a colonoscopy. There's something called a CT colonography, which is basically you still do the same bowel prep as if you're going to do a colonoscopy, which is actually for a lot of people, the hardest part. But anyway, you still do a bowel prep and then they use a CT scan and with a um, rectal contrast in order to see whether or not you have any polyps or colon cancer. However, it's important to remember that Polyps smaller than about at one and a half centimeters can't really be seen. And if it is polyps, I mean, if you do see a polyp or you see a mass, then you have to go through a bowel prep again and then get a colonoscopy. And then one other thing you can do is something called a barium enema. And that's still something you have to be prepped for. An enema is done, meaning that contrast is infused to the rectum and you're looking for masses there. So those are the only, the other ways to actually diagnose, okay? And I can understand that, look, there's some people who, no matter what, won't get a colonoscopy, and there's sometimes you fight a health system, they won't do it. And and for a lot of people, I mean, you know, things are expensive. And so I don't, pardon the pun, poo-poo those tests. I just want people to understand that it's not preventative. You know, so I don't hear a lot of people like, oh, I don't need a colonoscopy because my colon guard was naked. I just want them to understand what that test is truly about. And I think that a lot of times you just say, hey, it's just as good. I think, you know, some physicians say it's just as good. And they could be constrained by whether or not they're they work in an HMO, things of that nature. But the truth is, you know, and I tell patients, this was when it comes to being your own healthcare advocate. It is not, you know, they can say what they want to say, health systems can do what they want to do. But as long as you're armed with the information, you have a better chance of convincing or discussing this with your provider. And if they know this is something that you want and you know, you're know you able to tell them why, et cetera, then they'll be more apt to fight for you in that health system.
0: I love that. And I love that you broke down all these different tests because it can get super confusing. It's really no different than when people say that they're gonna just take some sort of food sensitivity test and then something comes back sort of high and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm allergic or I'm gonna die. It's like, no, they're not, that's actually not the same thing. They're just two different things, two different concepts, but yet they do serve a purpose, right? It's just not what people think they truly are.
1: Right. You just have to know the information just so you know what they are.
0: Exactly. Okay. So another thing that you had mentioned that really piqued my interest is you had said that you are seeing a lot of under the age of 45 come into your practice and that If you were born in the 1990s, you now have a higher chance of getting colon cancer than in the 1950s. And what I'm so curious as to your thoughts: Why are we seeing colon cancer rates and gut health issues as a whole on the rise like this and at so much younger of ages?
1: Thank you for asking that. This is what you know. My passion really lies is that we don't know for sure, but I I will tell you it's interesting because. When you look at traditional risk factors, okay, so traditional risk factors for colorectal cancer, and it's important to note that it is still technically a higher chance of getting colon cancer if you're over the age of 60. However, what we're talking about is the increase, right? So the increase and the increased chance of a population getting it. And so traditionally, if you're obese, so obesity was one of the largest contributing factors, which... The reason that happens, and a lot of times we tell people you're obese and you just need to lose weight, people don't understand why. We used to think that fat cells were inert, meaning that if you're fat, it's just, you know, it's because you're quote unquote lazy, which is so not true, number one. Number two is that it's inert, but we know that, meaning that fat doesn't do anything. We now know that fat in and of itself gives off inflammatory markers, which this inflammation, it makes different changes that we can have in our body that could lead to cancer can supercharge it and make it have cancer. So that was one traditional way. Number two was family history. But it's important that family history only accounts for about 8%, 8% of colorectal cancer. Also, lack of physical activity is something that we would see in terms of a risk factor, okay? With younger people, we think it's even more than that. So one of the things that we're seeing is that, and this is very important for, I want want people to hear this, 75% of the diet of people in this country under the age of 17 is is a highly processed food diet, 75%. So highly processed foods, what does that mean? And I hate this because people may turn off your podcast now, but example of this is bacon, okay? Everybody loves bacon. People love the way it smells. I know people of different religions that specifically say not to eat bacon, not to eat pork. They still eat a little bacon, okay? Bacon, for instance, Lunchables, for instance, all the candy. You know, I don't know who sponsors your podcast, so I don't want to get you in trouble, but
0: not a candy company and nobody.
1: <laughs> I don't know chip companies, but I want everybody to think about something. We all see kids kind of licking their fingertips when they eat those red hot Cheetos, fire hot Cheetos. What is a Cheeto? So we know what a potato chip is, right? We know what a corn chip is, but what is a Cheeto? A Cheeto is literally just processed. If you read the bag, it is literally chemicals that you can't even pronounce. Okay. We see so many people eating that who are younger than seven, who are young. Now, here's the hard part with that, okay? And so I'm not disparaging parents because as a father of two, I do know how hard it is. And even if you have resources, it's hard. But when I was a kid, you know, I was always the first kid to get dropped off. My parents were both social workers. I was always the first kid to get dropped off, last kid to get picked up because my parents were. I remember driving home, I would smell fast food. I'm like, mom, let's get some, let's get some. She's like, no, we don't have money for that because it was actually cheaper to eat at home than it was to eat at a fast food restaurant. Well, guess what, not anymore. It's actually cheaper and you feel fuller if you eat some of the fast food garbage that's out there. Okay, and the reason I call it garbage is it tastes great, but it's truly garbage to our to our system. So how do you tell a mom or a father who's picking up their kids? You know, it's six o'clock, your kid is hungry, you smell food, that smells great even if you know it's not good for you and it's cheap. So like how do you fight that? So that's a system that is hard to fight in general. But that's one of the reasons we think young people are getting colorectal cancer is that, okay? Is that diet. And a second reason is that by the age of 40, 75% of millennials will not be overweight but will be obese. We just discussed why that's a risk factor. Another one and this is something that I think a lot of people don't think of is vitamin D levels. In our country vitamin D deficiency is high. Vitamin D is made when the sun hits our skin and basically generates a hormone, vitamin D. Vitamin D is anti-inflammatory and it does help to protect our bodies from various diseases, including cancer. Now, I think that this is gonna get even worse because of COVID, because we were all inside with COVID. But vitamin D levels, in countries where most of the work is done outside, vitamin D levels are high, there is a significant decrease in colon cancer. So vitamin D levels, and those can be, you know, there's gummy vitamin Ds, there's so much vitamin D out there now that that's an easy fix. Also, what we're seeing is we know that diet's high in red meat, and I hate to tell people pork is another red meat, but those are risk factors for colon cancer, okay? Now, when we get back to processed foods, it's not just the consumption, like why are the chemicals bad, right? So chemicals are bad for us in general, but what we're seeing is that Highly processed foods change our microbiome. Now, this is getting more and more play, and I know you know a lot about this, but a lot of people don't know that after the skin, so skin doesn't just cover us, it blocks diseases. It's our biggest immunologic, actually, organ. The second to third area that fights infection and disease is our gut. Now, we have bacteria that line our gut, and it's in homeostasis. It's perfect. Darwin, God, whatever you believe in, it is perfect in terms of how it can help us, for most of us, let's say. The problem is these processed foods, these meats that are cooked at high temperature, which makes nitrates and causes other diseases, this changes the bacteria in our gut. And so studies have shown that when you look at people who have died from colorectal cancer or you actually biopsy and you study some of the bacteria that they have in their gut versus someone without colon cancer, you see a change. And so this is very important. And this is just something that, you know, everything I told you, these are our thoughts about why younger people are getting, it, okay? We don't know this for sure, but we do know that we do know that these are factors that contribute to it. And that is something that we don't necessarily believe in older patients. We don't believe that it's a change in their microbiome. But for younger patients, yes, that's what we think is going on. And so the question is, as much as I love to tell people about the processed food situation. And we, you, know, you changing your diet at the age of, I'm 48 years old and I have two daughters, 16 and 14. I try to be a good example for them because that's really how you can change that aspect is what you put in your body at the dinner table, which goes back to what I was talking to you earlier about saying colon, rectum and anus at the dinner table because what you put in your body at the dinner table can make the most difference in terms of your life. So that's a perfect time to talk about it. But if you're already of a certain age, that will help you in the long run, I mean, in the short term, but really what helps is your kids, is what, what your kids watch you eat, what you impart to your children. I don't eat a lot of red meat, not because of me learning all of this information. I have never eaten a lot of red meat just because my parents didn't, for whatever reason. They didn't eat red meat, not that they thought it was unhealthy, just because they don't like it. They didn't like it. So as a result of that, I've never eaten a lot of red meat. You know, that is something that can also be done to kind of decrease your children's chances of getting colon cancer. But we really think that the highly processed foods and the diet of young people is what contributes the most to that rise in colorectal cancer because of the change in the gut microbiome and because of obesity. That is really the real epidemic in my mind isn't, uh, for our younger generation, isn't just colorectal cancer. Colorectal cancer is the outcome of the highly processed food diet, which changes the microbiota. You know, it's my goal to actually decrease the age of when a colonoscopy is done in this country, because I don't think you're going to change the processed food situation. I don't. I mean, I think that we all try to provide alternatives, but it's hard. You know, my daughter, I never, we never gave them Cheetos. That was our big thing. We never really had chips in the house, but they go to school, you know, they go to school, they're going to get it. And so you try to limit it, but I do think that ultimately the only way we're going to stem this current tide is really trying to not only screen, you know, not doing stool tests, but having people get colonoscopies earlier. And that's an uphill battle that uh, I don't know how that can be won, you know, only with people listening to your podcast, other people, and kind of trying to fight for it. Because that's the only way you'll know if people have polyps. That's the only way you'll know if there's a colon cancer earlier. I have, and I want to say this person's name. His name is Michael Frierson Jr. Michael Frierson is a patient, was a patient of mine, became a friend. His father now has started an organization where he's trying to raise money to do colonoscopies for free for everybody under 30 because he wants to show what the risk factor is. And this gentleman, Michael Frierson, was an amazing patient of mine. He was not diagnosed with colon cancer, fought for a colonoscopy. For a year and a half. Finally had a colonoscopy, had a large stage three cancer that he came to me for. The cancer metastasized. We fought a good fight for, and he had a great life for about three of the six years or five years that he lived after diagnosis. This was the first time that actually, you know, as a surgeon, I operate. And then after you operate on somebody, you really, you know, you see them a little bit, but I don't see people die because I'm not an oncologist. So I operate on you I'll see you again. And, you know, I'll see you once a year, but I'm not actually involved with the chemotherapy, things of that nature. This was the first time, other than my mother, that I actually watched him go through every single stage. And I watched him at the end. And I had never seen that before. You know, it sucks when you're older. My mom died when she was, I get a little emotional. So I apologize. My mom died when she was 53. Everybody said the same thing, man. It sucks because your mom's so young. My grandmother died at 93. And guess what? It sucked. And she was, quote unquote, had a good life. When you watch somebody die, when their life's beginning, and you actually, when you watch anybody die, but then I think about all the patients I've taken care of who are in their 30s and 40s, and it is just terrible. He was married. You know, they couldn't have kids. He didn't want to bring kids in the world because he was worried that this could happen to them. He had so much hope. And, you know, I had hope every single time, you know, we had to operate on him. And I don't want this to happen. It's hard because I do worry that even what we're doing right now and getting the word out, you have to have a critical mass of people who are young, who are fighting for this and nobody fights for, you know, having tubes stuck in their butt. They don't, unless they've been through the same thing that I watched, you know, that's going to become more and more common. It's going to become more and more common. And it makes me sad that, you know, you have to have somebody famous die from this. The only time I do a lot of TV about this topic, the only time I do is when Somebody actually dies. Like nobody talks about, hey, I got prevented. I found X amount of polyps, you know, in my colon. Like there's no news stories on that. But when Kirstie Alley dies of colon cancer, I get called. Chadwick Bozeman dies of colon cancer, I get called. When an opera singer dies at 30 years old, or uh, I'm sorry, a thespian dies at 30 years old, I get called. Somebody always has to die. Someone always has to die, which is why I'm glad you called me not about anybody dying, but about prevention. And this disease is so preventable. It's so preventable. You know, if everybody got a colonoscopy at 30, 35, like it would stem the tide. Now that is literally like spitting in the wind. Some of the things people tell me are, well, you know, doctors just want me to get colonoscopies because it makes money. Let me tell you, no, it does not. Okay, no, it doesn't. It does not, right? It, It doesn't. It literally can prevent cancer, number one. But what's even more powerful is that we can prevent this by other things we do, by what we put in our bodies. High fiber diet, for instance, and I hope you don't mind. I know I jump all over the place, and I'm sorry, because everything is kind of related to the questions you know, you're asking. One of the things about young people getting it is that we don't eat a lot of fiber. And it's funny how I say we, because in my mind, I still consider myself a young person. But anyway, it's funny. When I grew up, fiber, I would think about like Metamucil, Citrusel, and I just remember my grandmother eating fiber. And I was just thinking, fiber is you know, for old people. Listen. I'm going to tell you, number one, why fiber is important, and I'm going to tell you the best way to get it. Number one, fiber is important because fiber is something that we consume that does not get absorbed in the colon. Now, what does it do? So one of the main jobs of the colon, when I ask people, they say, oh, it's to make poop. That is not true. The main job of the colon is actually to reabsorb water. So it helps to reabsorb water in our body. And so when you eat, when the waste goes to the cold and body um, water re- is reabsorbed and you're left with a hard waste, which is stool, the rectum's job is to hold stool to a socially appropriate time to let it go. And the anus's job, which is, you know, a joke I like to make is this is why, you know, colorectal surgeons are the smartest people in their med school class because we work on the anus and people say, why? I said the anus is the smartest organ. The anus samples and knows whether or not you have to fart whether or not you have to shart or whether or not you have to drop a deuce. Okay. Now that, that, I want you to think about that, right? It separates liquid, solid and gas. Okay. That's the only organ that can do that in the body. But those are the three, three jobs. Fiber helps to hold water in the colon. So you want to take the fiber beca- and, and you want to drink a lot of water so that when the time the water in the fiber gets to the colon, the body has enough water, it can absorb enough water and, but yet have water in the colon. The fiber helps to hold water in the colon so that you have a nice, easy bowel movement. Now, what's the big deal with that? Well, doing that decreases something that we call your colonic transit time. So that's the time something gets into the colon to the time you expel the waste. Because no matter what you eat in this country, there's always, whether you eat organic or not, organic is helpful, but there's still toxins that you want to eliminate out of your body. So you want that colonic transit time to be decreased. And that's what fiber and water do. On a quick aside, I like to say a quick and dirty, and I do mean the pun, way that you could determine how well your system is working and eliminating waste is that if you eat a plate of beets and you have a bowel movement and you get scared and you think you want to call somebody like me because your stool is red, that is your colonic transit time. It should be within 24 hours to maybe 30 hours that when you eat a plate of beets that you should see your stool red. And that's just a way to kind of determine how well your system's working. But now, what's a good way to get fiber? So most people love berries, and if anybody follows me, I'm a big berry proponent. Blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, those have between 5 grams to 7.5 grams of fiber per cup. Now, people say, oh, I'm on a keto diet, or I'm on this diet, and I can't have sugars. Well, fiber is so amazing because berries have a large amount of fiber, but they have a low glycemic index, which means that most of the sugars are fiber. I take two cups of those berries, a cup of almond milk because of the calories are, are low. However, I've just learned that almond milk can use a lot of water. So you can use oat milk. And then I do ice and I blend it. And that's my breakfast. I walk out of the house with 14 grams of fiber and we need 25 grams a day. And this is something that you can do, which also can help fight colon cancer.
0: I love all of those so much. I have a very similar breakfast. And you know what's... Just... So ironic about all the things that you just said is that I just ate not an entire plate but a whole bunch of beets. So Good. we're trying out some new recipes for our restaurant. So I'll be uh, seeing what I see or don't see later. Right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, this has been so incredible. I can't believe how fast the time went. I could, I know I could talk to you for at least another three hours. Bring me back,
1: Sarah. Bring me back, Sarah. One minute, please.
0: I think I'm going to have to seriously. At the end of my interviews, I always ask guests for the three convictions around gut health and gut healing. And I would love it if you could even just share one conviction that you have that you would love to share with the audience.
1: We kind of talked about it earlier, is that you shouldn't die from fear and you shouldn't die from embarrassment. At this point, a lot of people, when it comes to colorectal and gut health, that's what they're dying of, okay? It's important to know your body, so that way you know changes in your body. And please, if you see these changes and the changes last longer than a month, please be evaluated for any condition. You have to be your own healthcare advocate. You shouldn't die from fear and you shouldn't die from embarrassment.
0: Love it. Can you tell my audience how we can find you immediately and connect and follow all of your work?
1: Yes. So I communicate mostly through Instagram and TikTok. So in terms of Instagram, it is at Dr. Zuri Morel. And in terms of TikTok, it's at Dr. Zuri.
0: Ooh, I got to go find you on the TikTok.
1: (laughs) And I don't dance. I don't do any of that silliness. It's all trying to give people information in a
0: palatable way. I find that to be so helpful, especially for this topic. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Zuri. And to you out there, thank you for joining us. I will see you again next time. Thank you.